This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I normally don't just discuss one serial killer. I discuss several serial killers and something they have in common. I have once again let Igor out of the dungeon. Take it away, Igor. you this fine spring evening. In case you haven't figured it out yet, it's Igorius Mutileus. But you can call me Igor, always in the goddamn dungeon. As you can see, I am ready to get things started. This week, I found a website with a mix of new to me and old classic stories to share. I got it from a website called Criminal where creators can submit stories to see if they get published. So if you're interested in that type of thing, check it out. I did throw a few dollars to the author, Oceana Teppenhart. It'll get put on the website, so uh, I'm not spelling it. And first case, the case of the embalmed severed head. Now, first off, the photo that they have on the site makes it look a little like Medusa due to the curls on this old woman's head, and it really adds to the ghoulishness of the account. In December of 2014, an elderly woman's severed head was found in Economy, Pennsylvania, already embalmed. The authorities were unable to identify her, only confirmed that she was a local. How? I'm not sure. Doesn't say. If that's not odd enough for you, her eyes were replaced with rubber bouncing balls. Uh, messed up sense of humor. But apparently there are mortuary balls that are used in lieu of eyes. And so my mind goes to the lowbrow thought of it being the genitals of a male mortician. But you know, I'm a classy lady. Still, many thought there would be a chance that someone just stole an embalmed head from a hospital or mortuary. But no mortuary nearby, any hospital, nothing mentioned anything to the police about a lost head. This leads police to believe that the embalmer may have been an amateur with a sick hobby. To this day, no one knows who the woman is, who embalmed her, how she died, who killed her, or even if someone did kill her. Most of these, I they just had a small summary synopsis from the criminal website, so I did go get at least another type of source. So on this one, I found the Washington Post, and this article was by Michael E. Miller. The strangest thing about the severed head wasn't that it was discovered in the woods or that there was no sign of the body. It was that the head was almost appeared to be alive. A teen walking in the woods found the appendage. The head lay on its side like a ruined Roman statue, roughly 30 feet from the edge of a country road. Despite days or weeks even in the underbrush, the woman's skin was still smooth and unaffected by nature. So you got these curls, you know, this, ugh. Just look at the picture. I'll wait. Okay, I'm not gonna. Her gray hair was curled, like I said, as a preparation to go to church or a function. Two of her moles could still be seen on the cheek. So no, like, squirrels 
were chewing on that shit. The only hints that something was awry, <laughs> apart from her missing body, was that her face had sagged slightly to the side on the side that it rested. The woman appeared to be in her 60s. Now, a year later, the authorities had learned a lot about the body, less woman, as a dedicated team of detective scientists and artists using increasingly elaborate techniques to trace an outline for enigmatic life and curious death. The authorities quickly reasoned that the dead woman had, profession- had been professionally embalmed at a funeral home or mortuary, which means she probably wasn't murdered. I don't know how you would really know that. You could be murdered and still be embalmed, right? But I know what they're saying. Instead, investigators suspected that someone had illegally intervened as her body was on its way to the cemetery. Judging by the way the head was removed, the person must have had some anatomical knowledge. In their attempt to unravel the mystery, investigators first checked to see whether any local graves had been desecrated. When that came up in empty, it launched a series of tests to coax more information from the corpse. The goal wasn't just to close the case, but also obviously to return a name and dignity to a dead woman. The author says it was rubber pellets used as the eyes which suggested that at least some part of the woman's eyes had been removed for transplantation for medical research. So investigators started by tracking down organ donors. But the DNA database of donors didn't exist, and organ donation organizations couldn't share their information because of privacy restrictions. The embalming process had compromised the woman's DNA, and several of the most highly skilled forensic labs in the country offered to help, but because such little DNA couldn't be salvaged, and they didn't match any on record in the number of different national databases, probably because the woman's family never knew her head was missing. Other scientific avenues they also took led them nowhere. The woman had a full set of teeth but dental records proved just as unhelpful as DNA. Investigators had nothing to compare them with. They also tried asking medical schools and agencies that receive medical tissue for help, but ran into problems with that too. First, they were shocked to learn just how many dead bodies were in use, including in crash test simulations, military training, and NASA simulations. So, didn't know that. So maybe those crash test dummies, and I'm not talking that was a 90s group, maybe they have like bodies in them. Investigators also tried agencies accepting the eyes for research don't usually photograph the donor's face or test for DNA. When some leads did come in, they were quickly discarded because they didn't match the dental records. At the very beginning at the, of the investigation, the authorities asked for help. So there was an artist named Vitali. She crafted a sketch of the dead woman to help the police hopefully crack open the case. She spent 40 hours molding 10 pounds of clay into a 3D model of what she thought the woman would look like. According to tests conducted by the Salt Lake City-based isoforensics, Isotopes in the woman's remains showed that she had spent her last seven months moving between Ohio, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Maryland, and New York, and that she probably grew up in western Pennsylvania. That, to me, is amazing, unless they're just making this shit up. Toxicology tests also showed trace amounts of lidocaine and atropine in her body, 
suggesting that she suffered from a cardiac ailment and may have died from it. Now that whole lidocaine reminded me of that Colonel shoe case. You guys remember that? With the nips. And so I found that interesting. But for them to say that it was a cardiac ailment, maybe those those two things are only together for that certain situation. They also announced that her severed head could be the result of a booming black market in body parts. Booming black market in body parts. I mean, that doesn't even sound like the name of a good band. A funeral was held on the one-year anniversary of the body's discovery overlooking the Ohio River. Among those in attendance was Vitaly, the artist. The woman was buried without a headstone for now. The mystery isn't solved by spring. Her epitaph will read, Jane Doe, found December 12, 2014. The main investigator, O'Brien, said she's on my mind 24 hours a day, just the fact that I'm not able to identify her. There's nobody that deserves to be found that way. So what are your thoughts? I'm going to ask you on every single one of these. Hit me up. Go to our Facebook page, murderlabmedia.com. Like, subscribe, share, share, share. Second one we're going to go into, I had not heard about this one. Uh, Maybe you have. Are the Grimes sisters really dead? Again, going to start with uh, the criminal website account by Oceana Tepfenhart. Barbara and Patricia Grimes were teens in, this is the 1950s. And like most of the teens in the 50s, they were into Elvis. And they had gone to see his movie, Love Me Tender. They failed to return home, and their bodies ended up being found on the side of the road in a desolate area far from their home. One of the girls' chests, didn't say which, was covered in light stab wounds. And I, that's directly light stab wounds. How does a light from a hard? Anyway, but none of the marks would have been enough to kill them. I kind of think that's odd. How would you know that? I mean, I guess they're assuming how much blood would come out, but... I want a light stab, please, and then I'll get on with my day. The postmortem didn't reveal much, except that they died around five hours after they left the cinema. No one spotted them before they died, and no one knew how they got so far away from home. It seemed like a cut-and-dry kidnapping, murder, except for the fact that people kept seeing the girls after they had died. Days after they were allegedly deceased, Reports began to come in from people who swore they saw the two girls. In 2009, a Detroit cop decided to reopen the case to see whether anyone saw them as missing persons and then found that records showed that people kept seeing them, like I said, after they were dead. There were two employees that said the girls checked into the Claremont Hotel on the 30th, two days after they died. It got stranger. January 14th, a classmate's mother answered the phone only to hear the late Patricia Grimes, she wasn't past time to be home, she was deed, asked to speak to a classmate, then promptly hung up. So remember, this was in the 50s. They didn't have the technology that would allow a girl's voice to be synthesized like we do today. The next day, investigators got an anonymous call that they said the girls were dead told them where to search for them, and then they were, their bodies were located. Who knew where the girls were? Why did he call the police to tell them where they were? Why were people talking to them and seeing them when autopsy showed they were long dead? Like I said, I went and found another source. This is from Rare.com. 
Mariah Gill from February of 2020. This gives a lot more specifics about the sisters and their the situation. The title of the article is The Grimes Sisters' Murders Remain Unsolved, Even Elvis Presley Pleaded for Their Safety in 1956. So here it goes on to be specific and say that Patricia was 13 and Barbara was 15. They went to the Brighton Theater in Chicago to see the movie, Love Me Tender, telling their mom they'd be home after midnight after the double feature. The girls were witnessed by friends at the show, and as a matter of fact, Dorothy Weinert said she sat by them during the first movie, and when she was leaving after, she saw them at the concession stand, and that actually made her the last person to see them alive. When 2 a.m. came and the girls had not come home, the police were contacted. The investigation started immediately. The people of Chicago chimed in to help the Grimes family reunite, and a lot of leads poured in. They ranged from seeing the girls after the movie, listening to Elvis Presley records in a department store, seeing the girls leaving the bus station out of Chicago. Another friend of Patricia Grimes claimed to have received a phone call and hearing Patricia's voice on the other line. Ultimately, however, the police department assumed, like they do, that they must have run away to Nashville, Tennessee, to meet Elvis, as this was the only explanation they felt they had. Yeah, because, you know, 13 and 15 year olds, they'll do that. This conclusion gained so much traction that, as the article title alludes to, Elvis Presley was aware of it and addressed the girls over the radio in a message encouraging them to go home, saying, If you are good Presley fans, I'm trying to do Elvis, Yola, go home and ease your mother's worries. Okay, that was horrible. Their bodies lay naked in the snow. And the autopsy reports later showed that the girls died within a few hours of having gone missing. And as you do, the dinner was still in the stomach, had not been digested yet, so that's how they knew. So their death was ruled simply as murder and secondary exposure to the elements. The girls were buried by their older sister, Leona Freck, who died two years prior. Multiple people were questioned and arrested. There was a murder of Bonnie Lee Scott, a 15-year-old who was murdered a year later. She was discovered naked, similar to the Grimes sisters. Now, a man named Charles Leroy Melquist, nice, was convicted of that murder, but never convicted for the Grimes girls. Another suspect was Walter Krantz, who said he had dreamt of the location of the girls' bodies and was also brought in for questioning. There was even, like there always is, a person who confessed. Edward Lee Benny Bedwell. Again, Edward Lee Benny Bedwell. Who just happened to look like Elvis and claimed to have met the girls and spent a week with them. And with his friend named Frank, uh, with them on a bender. That's, you know, when you're drinking. His story didn't line up with the autopsy reports that said that the girls did not have liquor in their systems and that one of the girls had had sex. It was also undetermined if it was consensual or not. In his confession, Benny claimed that his friend knocked the girls out, stripped them, and left them on the side of the road after they turned down the boys' sexual advances. Gentlemen, chivalry is not deed. Despite the discrepancies, Benny later rescinded his confession, claiming police officers had bribed and beaten him for a confession, and he walked free. What do you think happened? Taking into account all that people were saying they saw, 
people saying they got calls. Now, a lot of people want to help. So that can happen where they they think they saw someone, it wasn't them. Maybe they were remembering right before they went missing in the murder. So people, they do want to assist and reunite families, but they probably did get picked up. Hmm. Again, hit me up on the FB or our Insta and let me know your thoughts. Now it seems like a good time right now for some jokes. I know you've missed my dad jokes. If there's a murderer inside your house, where is the safest place to hide? I'll give you a second to think. Murderer in your house, where do you hide? In the living room. A detective asks, what was found in the murderer's home? The investigator replies, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes. There you go. I uh, scratched that itch. Now, the third one we're going to be talking about is the bizarre deaths of the Jameson family. This reminds me of mixed stays in California. So do you guys remember that one where it's a family of four? They went missing. Their bodies were found almost four years later. I don't want to tell you how it turned out. I may do it still. Look it up. Maybe you're screaming at your phone or radio or whatever. What happened? But the mixed stays. California. This one has to do with Bobby, Sherilyn, and six-year-old Madison Jameson. They lived in Oklahoma. That's all to sing it. Where the winds go sweeping down the lanes. They were in the process of checking into some property in a place called Red Oak. There's video footage of them in the last days before they went missing, wandering around in a trance-like state. Says the trio began to look pale and emaciated. The local pastor said that the family was dealing with spiritual warfare and that Sherilyn had become obsessed with witches. Now, some of my best friends are witches, so I don't blame her. The spiritual warfare they were acting out seems a bit far-fetched. But something obviously wasn't right. Madison claimed she would talk to a dead girl in her home, which is a rather dark hobby, for a uh, kid. The pastor said that the father, Bobby, had asked him for special bullets to hunt dark forces. It's, it delves right in, doesn't it? Sherilyn had also told her best friend, Bobby's eyes would turn coal black in fits of rage and the house was haunted. So I don't know if one fed into the other, both going on simultaneously, but freaky. Then the entire family disappears. Their home was in disarray with a what's described as a witch's Bible in the middle of the room. Now, that's open for lots of interpretation. Maybe it did say witch's Bible. I didn't Google anything, but hey, maybe there'd be some nasty porn. It appeared that the family didn't leave of their own accord because no one saw them alive again and they never returned home. And of course, you've got the weird... They're emaciated, and everyone's thinking they're haunted. There's witches and all kinds of, like, Blair Witch shit. A couple days later, police found the abandoned truck. They had their IDs, phones, $32,000 in cash, and the almost dead family dog. I feel really bad for the puppers, but let's go back to the $32,000 in cash. Keep that in mind. So the investigators and the search parties weren't able to locate them at that point. Their bodies were also found almost four years later, which is, very, again, 
reminded me in the mixed days. And obviously in this, at this time was in a state of extreme decomposition. No cause of death was ever determined and no one had any explanation for their behavior before they left. Everything from an underhanded crystal meth dealings to falling victim to local cults has been su suggested as a motive, but to this day, the deaths are still filed as unsolved with no suspects, no cause of death, and no motives. Moving on to strangeoutdoors.com, which I did use for my headless men of Neavaya Valley. I don't remember, but you know what I'm saying. It was the one I did with V. Strange Outdoors from January 16th of this year, so this is new, it says disappeared October 8th, 2009 in, like I said, Red Oak, and the bodies were found November 16th, 2013. October 8th, 09, Bobby Jameson says 44, Sherilyn is 40, and we know about six-year-old Madison. Their dog, Maisie, aww, loaded their pickup truck, headed into Oklahoma's San Boy, B-O-I-S, San Bo, San Boa mountains and were never seen alive again. The police said they weren't able to completely eliminate anything and the medical examiner ruled their cause of death as inconclusive. They actually lived in Eufaula, Oklahoma and they traveled 30 miles to Red Oak to near the mountain range because they were thinking of buying a 40 acre plot of land. Going back to that 32,000. Hmm. Their plan was to live in a storage shed that they already owned on the land. A storage shed. Look that up. Look up a picture. And now, I can be low maintenance, but I do like to glamp. That seems ridiculous to me. Bobby and Sherilyn visited an associate of the landowner, and when that meeting was completed, they parked, went for a short walk around 15 minutes or so, but they took their GPS unit and found a quiet spot on a hillside. They returned to their vehicle, drove a little further, and left the truck in the middle of the dirt track and vanished. But they did lock the truck. The San Boy Mountains, they are a small mountain range in southeastern Oklahoma and part of the larger Ochita Mountains. The Smarty Pants fact for the day, San Bois is a French term meaning without forest or without wood in English. There you go. Throw that one out. Forget your word of the day toilet paper. Now, Sherilyn's son from a previous relationship, Colton, saw her two weeks before they disappeared, and he said she made no mention of any plans to move. Bobby apparently was in a car accident in 2003 that left him in chronic pain. Sherilyn suffered from bipolar disorder, and it said she had prescribed medication, but since her condition was poorly controlled... And when I hear that, I think she probably doesn't take her meds consistently. She often experienced bouts of severe depression. So we got physical stuff going on with him. We've got mental and physical stuff going on with her because one leads to another with those type of things. The marriage was said to be in a bad state and the family kept to themselves. I mean, they were going to live in a storage shed. Bobby and Cheryl Lynn spoke to a local pastor about their belief their home was invaded by dark spirits and requested an exorcism. Maybe they should start with themselves. And going back to Madison and her imaginary friend, they said she started speaking to a friend named Emily. And Sherilyn believed Emily was actually a malevolent entity. So do you guys ever watch A Haunting or The Haunted? One was on the, the uh, 
Animal Planet. And the only reason it was on there is because they had pets involved in the haunting, but it was still cool. One of the episodes has man in it. And if you're a fan like I am, you know what I'm talking about. Where man did it. Man told him to do it. The kid. He was peeing in the closet. And his mom said, what happened? Man told me to do it. Man said I could. And that just reminds me of that. I'm not saying she was pissing in the closet, but... At one point, Bobby asked the pastor about the special bullets, like we had mentioned previously, because he wanted to shoot a handful of spirits. I wonder how he understands physics. Whom, he said, were living on the roof of their home. He was also planning to exercise the spirits with the help of the copy of the Satanic Bible. Maybe that's the witch's Bible that they referenced previously. Like I said, a lot of interpretation because of people's beliefs and ignorance. A friend of Sherilyn's told the police that she sometime, sometimes conducted seances with her, though Sherilyn took them much more seriously than she says she did. Sherilyn had also written graffiti on their storage container, and I love this, about her black cats being poisoned. And she believes that someone from the neighborhood had killed the cats, so she wrote witches did not like it when their cats were killed. She wrote that. Look up the picture, I swear, she spray-painted it on the side. I mean, that's one way to do it. Like, you could do that on your garbage cans. Witches don't like it when you take their garbage cans. I mean, people wouldn't fuck with you. So both friends and family agreed that the Jamintons' home was haunted, and few have shared that they, too, experienced odd things inside the house. No mention of what type of things, what they thought was weird. But her best friend said, Nikki Shinold... In all seriousness, the house was haunted. I don't want to sound crazy, but whenever I went there, I felt hor a horrible presence. I would leave feeling so down and depressed. And again, I say maybe it's the people that lived there. I'm not saying I don't believe in that stuff, but that's a different hat that I'll wear. And I don't have that on. In July of 2009, Sherilyn's ex-husband from her first marriage took custody of their son, Colton. Sherilyn was then hospitalized following a failed suicide attempt. During the custody hearing, 12-year-old Colton said he wanted to live with his dad and gave a statement saying that he, his mother seemed very depressed and she often acted strangely. So that the whole thing is just really sad. I feel for him. On Saturday, October 17th, 2009, hunters on dirt bikes. Now, I'm not from Oklahoma, but I wouldn't think of hunting on a dirt bike, but hey, to each their own. Maybe I'd love it. The hunters ran across the ab abandoned truck in Latimer County, and it's northwest of Red Oak, you know, because I know geography, and they called police to report the vehicle. Initially, the police assumed the vehicle had been stolen, as the report suggested the truck to have only been there for a few hours, but later that day, the same hunter called back and confirmed the police that he had seen it there before for a number of days. Latimer County Sheriff, listen to this name, Israel Bochamp, love it. So next time you go like check into a hotel or out to eat, Israel Bochamp or Bochamp party of four, even if there's two of you. And then just tell them that you're waiting on them the whole time. So this Israel Bochamp at first thought the truck had been stolen, but realized something far more serious had taken place. So he launched a huge search operation, combed the area with 400 volunteers, horses, mules, ATVs, 16 teams of cadaver dogs, and an unmanned drove. They found nothing. 
I wonder if they use those hunters on the dirt bikes. They seem helpful. So during the searches, the cadaver dog teams, that's hard to say, repeatedly found a scent near a nearby water tower. So they drained it, but they didn't find any evidence of the missing family. The police searched the truck, and like we mentioned before, the cell phones were found, the uh, large amount of cash, maps, a GPS, Sherilyn's purse, and wallets. They also found their dog, Maisie, old poor baby. The vehicle was in working order. They had, it had fuel, no signs of an accident. Now that 32 grand was stuffed under the driver's seat, and that was puzzling to the family, as me, because they were on disability at the time. So they were getting disability payments. Again, was it to buy the land or something more sinister like a drug deal? They also, in the truck, found an 11-page hate letter from Sherilyn to Bobby. It's called thus because she told him he didn't care about his daughter. She listed all the things she hated about him, including he was a loner and a hermit. And she wrote she wanted a divorce. I wonder if they were like in a picnic later and she was going to go, here's some light reading. But here's 32 grand to soften the blow. The police also found no signs of a struggle in the vehicle or on the soft ground around it. No blood, no broken glass, although some rubbish or garbage was strewn around the truck. November 16th of 2013, just 2.7 miles from where the truck was located, deer hunters discovered the skeletal remains of two adults and one child in the Smokestack Hollow area of Panola Mountain. The area was extremely remote and the three bodies were severely decomposed and the remains consisted of three skulls, a number of bones and bone fragments, the victim's shoes, and some scraps of clothing. Forensic testing confirmed that the remains were that of the family, but it took eight months for them to get that back. When questioned why the initial searches had found nothing, despite how large they were, Assistant Special Agent of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation told reporters that falling leaves potentially obscured the bodies. If I'm just walking, I mean, maybe, but if you're like actively searching and don't they take sticks and poke at shit? So interesting, maybe the bodies were moved. Due to the extensive decomposition, it was deemed impossible to determine the cause of death, though one of the skulls, Bobby's, had a small hole that was thought to be a bullet wound. Later, the police dropped this line of inquiry, but the hunters who found the bodies disagreed. They were like, well, it probably isn't. It's probably something else. Maybe he had a bad headache. I don't know. They, <laughs> Yeah, I just wonder sometimes what they think. The police found surveillance video footage from outside of the Jameses' homes where that's where they show them walking. And they're walking back and forth around 20 times from their house to the truck, loading items in like a trance, like zombies. Sometimes they even weren't, they weren't carrying anything at all. Other times they stopped, stood with a vacant stare. So this odd behavior on the CCTV suggests that drugs may have been involved. But with severe depression and paranoia looming large over the family, it's not hard to imagine that the house had a heavy feeling to it. 
When the police checked the phone records of the cell phone, it had made an outgoing call to a voicemail on, Des- on November 12th, though it would have been locked inside the truck at the time. Going back to our buddy Sheriff Beauchamp, he thought the foul play was involved, but he left the service, so he must have retired. And the incoming sheriff, Jesse James, no shit, told the press when he was asked about where they were going with that line of inquiry, he said, it's a very strange deal, you know, the way this case is unfolded. We're looking at a lot of things. A lot of things have crossed my mind. So, you know, he gave a lot of specific answers. Later, Beauchamp did say, normally you go through an investigation and one by one start to eliminate certain scenarios. We haven't been able to do that in this case. This family, everything seems possible. Now, the theories. There are many lost in the woods. Maybe they decided to go for a quick hike and lost their way and died from hypothermia. The trouble with this theory, it says, that the bodies were found lined up side by side with their faces down. It looked like they had been murdered execution style, but again, their bodies were so decomposed, his was the only one that they found a potential bullet hole. They were also found three miles from their truck, and given Bobby's back problems, it's unlikely he would want to just go walking in the hills. Also, the truck was parked in such a way that it appeared they were leaving and were stopped by somebody. I've not seen how the vehicle is parked. That'd be interesting to see if someone like maybe pulled in front of them. The next theory is murder-suicide. Sherilyn was known to own a 22 caliber pistol that she carried in her truck. The coroner found that small hole in Bobby's skull. They said it could be from a bullet, but neither Sherilyn nor Madison had any gunshot evidence. The gun was never found. So if Sherilyn had used it to kill her family and then shoot herself, why hasn't the weapon been located? Maybe it was removed by someone else who came across it. This is a good one. The Jamesons were members of a satanic cult. We mentioned a witch's Bible, satanic Bible. Sherilyn's mother, Connie Kokatan, I love these names, claims her daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter was on an Oklahoma cult hit list. She's quoted as saying, that part of Oklahoma is known for that, cults and stuff like that. From what I've been told and from what I've read, I was told around the time of Sherilyn's disappearance that she was on a cult's hit list. Connie could not provide the name of the alleged cult or have police been found any links to one. So that's just a desperate mom, which I feel bad for, but that's interesting. Drug deal gone wrong. The area of Oklahoma where the Jamesons lived, as well as the area they were looking to move to get that land at, is known for drug activity, namely meth labs. It says Bobby had recently reported someone in the local area for running a meth lab. So that's pretty good lead. In the surveillance video where they're packing their truck and walking around like zombies, the two also looked thin, gaunt, and unwell. Drugs could also explain that, as well as a large sum of money in the truck. Drug abuse could also explain the couple's erratic behavior. One theory is that the Jamesons came upon illegal drug activity, saw more than they were supposed to, were killed to keep them quiet. But why didn't the drug dealers take the truck and the valuables? 
after a search of the house, police found no evidence they were taking meth or any other illegal substances. There was no drug-related paraphernalia. So that one, hmm. Maybe next is Bobby's dad killed the family. This is good. The family had filed a protective order against Bobby's dad. I'm telling you, we all have one in our families, I think. Maybe not. Bob Dean Jameson, Bobby Dean, claimed that he had been threatened to kill him over some business dealings. In the protective order filed in April 2009, Bobby alleged that his father had intentionally hit him with his car. Wow. On November 1st, 2008, and said that he was very dangerous and thinks he's above the law and that he was involved in prostitutes, gangs, and meth. I've heard of lions, tigers, and bears. Oh my, but prostitutes, gangs, and meth. Oh fun. Prior to his death, Bob Dean had a long-running feud with his son. Apparently it came to legal action when Bobby accused his father of backing out on an agreement to give him half of the proceeds from the sale of a gas station he owned. Can you make this up? This is just good. Bob used to get Bobby, so the dad used to have his son work at the gas station. The father, Bob, threatened the family, and there were also rumors he had connections to the Mexican Mafia. Better and better. Now, Bobby's father died two months before the family went missing at the age of 64. Bobby's uncle, Jack said Bobby's dad was either in a hospital or a rest home at the time of the disappearance and that he was a disturbed individual but not capable of murder. Even if he didn't commit the murder himself, do you think he could have paid someone to do it? Investigators said Bobby Dean had a solid alibi and dismissed him as a person of interest. White supremacists. Prior to the Jameson's disappearance, a handyman and family friend called Kenneth Bellows had stayed with the family. In August of 2009, when he found out that Sherilyn was, had some Native American heritage, he uh, started showing his racist leanings. Arguments between the two broke out that resulted in Sherilyn firing that 22 caliber pistol into the ground by his feet. She pointed the gun at him and forced him to leave the house. She's not taking that. This man had a solid alibi, so they dismissed him as a suspect, but it's at least possible he had true connections to white supremacists that Sherilyn's name wound up on a hit list. Next is the family kidnapped by pedophiles. Perhaps the family was kidnapped so that the kidnapper or kidnappers could get to Madison. The police examined Bobby's phone from the truck and they found a final picture of Madison taken up in the mountains. Friends and family believe it was not taken by Madison's parents. And it says that in the picture, she is looking away from the camera, she looks unhappy, and she has her arms crossed. If that had been Bobby or Sherilyn behind the camera, she wouldn't have looked like that. It's debatable whether she really looks unhappy enough to determine whether the photo proves anything. I've been in pictures where I've just been irritated, especially with parents, and they weren't the ones that took it. Another family member did, but they were with me in the picture. So that doesn't really prove anything to me. Witchcraft and possession. The family's pastor, Gary Brandon, told police during the initial investigation that the family had been involved in the spiritual warfare and that both Bobby and Sherilyn 
had said they had seen spirits in the house. Sherilyn said the spirits were of a long-dead family (laughs) that were living with them. At one point, Bobby asked Gary whether he could obtain those special bullets. Keep coming back to that. He'd later say that he had consulted with the Satanic Bible to get rid of the evil presence. A witch's Bible was found in the house after the disappearance. Then strange messages were found written on the side of the container that the family had planned to move into. One read, three cats killed to date by people in this area. Witches don't like like their black cat killed. Sherilyn's neighbors had, she thought, been poisoning their cats. So she wrote that on the side of the container to scare them off. I mean, if they weren't taking care of their cats, if they were malnourished, their pets probably were too. But an abandoned wreck of a vehicle was found near where the family truck was found. It was used for shooting practice by locals, and written on it were satanic messages. Now, again, that all that stuff is so open to interpretation. Most things aren't truly satanic. It's kids, but, you know, it just feeds into it, into that narrative. What do you think happened? Hit me up on the Murder Lab. Let me know. I would love to get enough feedback from everybody that we can discuss in future episode, like do a circle back. So that'd be great. So this last one I have heard of, and maybe you have as well, it's the disappearance of the Sodder children. Now this is back in the 40s. Fayetteville, West Virginia. George and Jenny Sodder settled in with their 10 kids. You heard me right. George Sauter was a vocal anti-fascist, regularly getting into arguments with fellow Italians who supported Benito Mussolini. That made him a target among fascists, and he regularly got threatened because of his political beliefs. Now, for those of us in this climate, from last year especially, I looked up what is fascism, so we know actually what we're talking about here. It's referring to Europe between 1919 and 1945, and they also had adherents in Western Europe, the United States, South Africa, Japan, Latin America, and the Middle East. The common characteristics include extreme militaristic nationalism, contempt for electoral democracy, and political and cultural liberalism, and a belief in a natural social hierarchy and the rule of elites. So there you go. If you wondered if you were a fascist, you can check that box or not. It's said that many of the people who threatened George were involved with the mafia. Probably rumor. One shady salesman of the sea, this is kind of in a common lore, common story that they talk about with this that I've heard. There was an insurance salesman and he apparently threatened the Sodders. He mentioned, if you don't get this life insurance, this, you know, home insurance, whatever it was, then your house is going to go up in smoke. And he also uh, threatened him to stop insulting Mussolini. So this guy is going to come back into the fold here in the story. So don't forget about him. Christmas 1945. There's a loud sound on the roof that wakes up Jenny. She goes back to sleep. Because she, you know, looks around, nothing appears going on, goes back to bed. After a while, she smells smoke, traces it to a fuse box in George's office. She wakes up the family, try to get him out. But things weren't in their normal place. 
For example, the second floor ladder was missing and the phone line was dead, later found to be cut. They kept a water bucket filled. It had frozen because it was so cold. The truck wouldn't start and when George went to get another vehicle, that one wouldn't start either. Only five of the children were able to escape. No bones or bodies have ever been located at the burn site. The investigators pointed to faulty wires as a source of the fire, but the family says two days previously they had an electrician out. I mean, I say that doesn't mean that he or she did a good job. I'm assuming it was a him because it was the 40s. Jenny did her own investigations, kudos to her. She contacted a crematorium, found out how hot it would have to get to get rid of all the bones, turn them to ash, and she found out that their home would not have been hot enough to completely destroy the bones. There would have been some left. George had a private investigator, and the investigator found out the fire chief said he found a heart that belonged to one of the children. It ended up being a cow's liver. The chief said he was trying to give them some closure. So he totally faked that. He he totally planted evidence. There were sightings of the children, like the Grimeses. Hotel owners said they saw them check in with two men. A man about the same age as one of the missing sons claimed later to be him. Look that up because it's interesting. It has, he sent him a picture and the picture has some weird writing on it that no one could decipher what it meant and it went nowhere. Any and all of the leads were looked into by the parents. They made so many trips to see people that reported finding the son or daughter and to take them home and it wasn't them. It's just... The whole story is so sad. Now, the next, the source that I have is from American Hauntings, Inc. So I was hoping that they were going to say, you know, there's going to be some hauntings on the property because I like that kind of thing. But if there were bodies found, there couldn't really be hauntings. I just thought it was a, uh, it was a tease. They say the ladder was located 75 feet from the house thrown down into an embankment so the ladder they usually kept to get out was completely moved that far the family did put up billboards they kept them up until jenny's death in 1989 so have you seen us and if you pull up the picture look up the solder family you'll see the pictures of the five kids looking back it could have been an abduction or trafficking as we know it today case So this one, look into it more because there is more to it, more specifics, but those are the highlights. And I've heard many different podcasts present this. So that's another thing to do is go look up Sodder Family and you'll find, it'll pull up all the different podcasts and everything. You could listen to their episodes, but even if you think you know it, this is a rule I started to follow. Even if you think you know everything and you've heard the case before, listen to the podcast or read the article because they may uncover something that you didn't, especially the podcast. They may have done extra research. Rule of thumb for myself. Well, that's what time we have today. I do have five more, actually six more to go over. We're going to start next time with the Hinterkaffeck Massacre. Look that up if you're not familiar because it's a good one. I want to thank you for letting me out of the dungeon, spending some time with me again. 
And remember, everyone has to find their truth. Mine is Abby. Enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab. Go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not. As long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. I'm not saying she was pissing in the closet, but...